I think if you've got young children, if you can follow Anissa, who's at the back door, and Corner Pebble is on, and Lauren is also helping out there. So if you're visiting with us or you're new this morning, we're going through the book of Ephesians at the moment at church. And there's a very good reason, I think, for following through um, a particular book of the Bible. And that is because you're not going to hear the preacher's own hobby horses, but you're going to hopefully hear um, God's hobby horse, if I can put that reverently, or really his agenda. What does it? What is the Lord wanting to say to us through his word? And so today we come to uh, chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 21, and this is God's word. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. 
Speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, what a great joy it is to be able to meet with you, the true and living God, in corporate worship this the Lord's day, the day in the week where you broke the power of sin and death once and for all. And we pray, Lord, that now by your Holy Spirit, you will speak to us through your word, impress upon us those things that you want us to believe and to obey. Lord, may we not just be filled up with head knowledge, but may we know you better. Lord, may we know how much we are loved in Christ. And in response, may we, as we heard Naomi testify earlier, may we flee from our sin. May we walk in the light. And may we be filled with your Holy Spirit. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I think one of the most gut-wrenching war movies ever made was Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. Uh, if you've ever seen it, then I think you'll agree and you'll know exactly what I mean. In fact, Steven Spielberg himself says that at the premiere of the movie, after the movie had shown, there was, he went to the bathroom and there was a, a man who was actually an older man who was at the sink weeping. Uh, and uh, Steven Spielberg went up to him very gently and graciously and he asked if he was okay. And when he realised that it was Steven Spielberg, he said, thank you, because that's exactly what it was like. It just so realistically, not to mention graphically, portrays the horrors of war especially how it portrays the landing on Omaha Beach. At the start of the movie, though, we're introduced to the main character as he is as a very old man who's now close to death himself. And he's shown kneeling beside the grave of one of the soldiers who had many, many, many years before saved his life. And as he lay dying, the soldier, this particular soldier played by Tom Hanks, says to him this, James... Earn this. Earn it. That is, he is to earn or deserve in some way the sacrifice that all these other men had given for him so that he could live. Because they'd gone on a rescue mission across uh, France to be able to find him. And so many, many years later, as an old man with a wife now and grandchildren, he returns to the cemetery and he finds the grave, the plot, of ground where Tom Hanks' character is buried. And he says to him this, every day I've thought about what you said to me on that bridge. I've tried to live the best life that I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all you have done for me. And he starts crying and he asks his wife, who is there next to him, tell me that I've led a good life. Tell me that I'm a good man. Now, it's an incredibly moving and powerful scene, but it's also tragic. 
There's a sense of great tragedy and incompleteness in the man's life. Because how do you ever know that you could be good enough? How do you ever fully repay or deserve the sacrifice which others have given for you? And you get the feeling that the man in the movie is himself, even though he's lived a long life now and has had a wife and children and even grandchildren, he's actually still not at peace. He's he's been tormented by that all of his life, of never really being able to measure up. Now, can I just say, friends, thankfully the way God treats us is the complete opposite. Just take a look again at what Paul says in verses 1 and 2. Because rather than telling him or telling us to earn this, our Heavenly Father says this, Because of all that I've done for you, I now want you to live differently as a result. Live a life of love, God says to us, because I have loved you. There's nothing that you can do to earn or deserve this love, but it's been freely given. So therefore, love, because you are loved. Do you see the difference? Paul says in verse 1, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is what we call as Christians, isn't it? The gospel. God took the initiative while we were still enemies. Why? What Paul says back in chapter 2, while we were still dead in our sins and trespasses, God made us alive in Christ. God loved us while we were still hating him. The approach of the Apostle Paul is incredibly liberating, especially... And it's powerful, isn't it, what Naomi shared before, especially in our own personal battle with sin. Because our primary motivation for living in the way that pleases God is not guilt. It's not fear. It's not apprehension or, you know, tell me that I've been a good man. Tell me at the end of my life I've done enough. But it's a knowledge of knowing how much God has done for us. That's the gospel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you hear nothing else, hear this. You are dearly loved. And as such, this gives us the confidence and the strength to live in a way that pleases and honours God. If you're struggling with sin and temptation, this is the foundation. You have to first of all know that you are loved, that you are forgiven and that you are saved. And because of that foundation, we can build the house on we have, because we've been saved to obey. You see, it's that salvation, it's that forgiveness that will give you the freedom and the confidence to live in the way that God has called us to be. But if you get the cart before the horse, it's a disaster. You will always be weighed down with the burden of legalism and indeed condemnation. You see, the sacrifice that Jesus offered for us on the cross was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, wasn't it? That's why Jesus said at the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished. It, and that sacrifice 
what a, what a, a powerful, evocative metaphor this is. Paul says, is the sweet-smelling aroma of atonement that wafted up to God. There's a paradox, if ever there was one. A man that had been beaten beyond human recognition, who's bleeding and hung on a cross for hours, days, who, if I can say this, people that died of crucifixion would actually defecate on themselves. So you can imagine all the smell that is associated with the cross. It was a horror. But in the plan of God was the sweetest smelling aroma of sacrifice because he did it for us. The one and only thing that perfectly reconciles us and eternally unites us to God. He was cut off so that we could be included. He, if I can put it like this, was hated so that we could be loved. He went through hell on the cross and experienced God's judgment so that we could in turn, receive God's forgiveness. It's just like when Noah offered up a sacrifice of the birds and the animals when he got out of the ark. The Lord says to him, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. So too the death of Jesus is a pleasing aroma to the Lord and as such completely turns away God's condemnation and wrath. And every time we see the rainbow, we see what it's really about, don't we? We don't see pride. We see the greatest act of humiliation in the history of the world. Paul then goes on to explain how we should live out our salvation as dearly loved children. And his words are incredibly challenging, not to mention far-reaching. Take a look at verses 3 and 4. For the essence of what he is saying is that we were once darkness, but now we are light. It's not just that we lived in the dark and that we now walk in the light. That's true. But it's more than that. It's that we were darkness and now we are light. Do you see? There's been this radical change that has taken place inside us, in our hearts. Indeed, we've been given a new heart. That's why Jesus says we must be born again. This means this. There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of greed because these are improper for God's people, holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. We'll look at this a little bit later, but you know, the great sign that you are filled with God's spirit, it's not rolling around on the floor barking like an animal. It's gratitude. Thanksgiving is the sign that you are filled with God's spirit. Now, there's a really strong exhortation that God's apostle lays down here, exhorting us to greater and greater holiness. But all too often, I think we excuse sin, don't we? Especially in the types of things I think we allow ourselves to be entertained by on TV, at the movies, uh, in books or on the internet. And it's time, I think, we call it out. 
I sent out a link this week to an interview I did this recently with a guy called Cap Stewart in the United States. He's a Christian researcher and I think he provides a really good challenge for us in this regard. Do we watch or allow ourselves to be entertained by movies or books which are really just soft porn? Or do we pursue holiness, particularly in the areas that we want to be entertained by or watch? Notice what Paul says in verse 5. The warning that he gives us is incredibly sobering. Paul says, For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. See, why is this so serious? Because it's about what or maybe who you worship. You can't worship Jesus and worship porn. They're two competing worships. They're two competing gods. And as Jesus says about mammon, not just about money, but mammon is broader than that. It's whatever you trust in, you cannot serve the one and be devoted to the other. They are two competing loves. Now, this is a sobering warning which we really need to take to heart. And friends, we, we, we've got to stop making excuses for, don't we? I remember Patricia Wirikun coming to uh, one of the high schools where I was teaching scripture and she challenged the girls. This was Strathfield Girls High School, one of the inner city, more prestigious public girls' schools. And she said to the girls, are you watching Game of Thrones? And they, a giggle went through, you're watching porn and you need to stop. And can I say, friends, if we allow ourselves to watch that, we need to stop. It's out of place for God's people. We shouldn't use the doctrine of God's grace as an excuse for sin. Whether it's lust or whether it's covetousness. Which means even those impure desires of the heart, which don't display themselves outwardly, have to be forsaken. Notice that it's not just theft, but greed. It's not just adultery, but covetousness. And God's just and righteous anger is coming against these things. And Paul says, make no mistake, they are. That's his warning to us. And so we need to repent of things like greed, of being envious of what others have and coveting them for ourselves. I think we often talk about sexual immorality, don't we? But I don't think we talk probably enough about materialism. It's a huge temptation for us as believers in every age. And I think the Lord's really convicted me of this lately, especially in Australia where we're surrounded by such affluence. We look at all the things that other people have and we don't steal it, we don't take it, but we covet it. We desire it for ourselves. That's sin. That's the 10th commandment. The Apostle Paul says, actually, 
That's idolatry. We may well be bowing, we may well, we may as well be bowing down to a statue, even if it's only an image which exists in our own heart. The perfect person, the perfect body, or the perfect house with the most perfect furniture, that's coveting. It's exactly the same sin as bowing down to an idol, and it belongs to those who are still in the dark. But that's not who we are, is it? That's not us. We have been redeemed and brought into the kingdom of light, which means that we should do all that we can to please the Lord. And if you think, well, I'm not really sure, then find out, is what Paul says. Paul says in verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. This really raises an important question, and that is, how do you avoid sin, but at the same time expose it? I mean, doesn't it, in a sense, you could think, well, doesn't it make you even more focused on thinking about the thing itself that is wrong? Especially when Paul says in verse 12 that it is shameful even to mention what is disobedient, what the disobedient do in secret. But that's the point. Sin thrives in darkness, but it absolutely withers when it's brought to the light, when it's confessed, when it's acknowledged, when it's repented of. But the temptation that we have in our hearts is to sort of foster it and nurture it and feed it, but to sort of keep it secret in the dark where it's not seen. So what does Paul mean? Well, I think just like when you put a tarp over your lawn and it kills the grass, I don't know if you've ever done this, I think it's what Paul is saying is that here, sin is fruitless and barren. What we need to do then is to expose every area of our lives to the life and the light of Christ. We should expose them, not for their own sake or to draw attention to them, but so that in the light of Christ they will be shown for the dark and fruitless deeds that they are. You see, Paul said earlier, sexual immorality, any kind of impurity, and especially greed, covetousness, they're all forms of idolatry. They're taking a good thing that God has made and they're turning it into an ultimate thing that you worship that your heart trusts in. You're making it when you lust after those things, you're making them an end in themselves. You're replacing those things for God and God will not tolerate rivals. When we bring our bodies, our speech or our money before Christ though, his lordship gives us the light to see clearly what we should do, how we should treat them. Now, the final point then that we need to remember is to redeem the time that we have been given. It's the one thing that is incredibly precious and also limited. Especially, uh, look at what we read from Psalm 90, especially from verse 12. Um, it says, Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I saw this chart on Facebook, and I've been meaning to buy it because I think it's such a good thing. 
It's just a chart with a whole lot of little empty boxes and you just colour in a box for each day you live. It's supposed to help with procrastination because the thing is this, there's only so many boxes. Three score and ten. Seventy. Eighty if you have the strength. Most people that I meet who are more than 80, they're just saying how hard life gets. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You are going to die. That is the truth you need to keep in mind every day. You are going to die. How you live your life each day is all important, but you will die. The world out there will never want you to hear that. When you come in here every Lord's Day, it's the thing you need to keep in mind. You are going to die, A. B, in Christ, you're going to live again. And hopefully by the Spirit of God, you will live well in between. You will live fruitful and productive and meaningfully. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Don't take the time which God has given you for granted because you actually don't know how much time you have. You don't know whether it's a short time or it's a long time. You don't know whether the Lord will call you home early or late. But know this, he will call you home. So don't waste your life. The days are evil. They're filled with the temptation to do wrong, to be fruitless. Don't waste your life. Yeah? Jonathan Edwards, the one um, whom many consider to be the greatest American theologian, uh, wrote this on his 20th birthday. He was 20. Resolved never to lose one moment in time, but to improve it in the most profitable way possible. Never to lose one moment in time, but to improve it in the most profitable way possible. One of the greatest lies of the devil. Can I talk to young people here for a second? One of the greatest lies of the devil he could ever tell you is you sow your wild oats and then come back to the Lord later on. What a waste. What a lie from the pit of hell. Why would you sow your wild oats when you could be reaping a harvest right now? Why would you poison your own body and soul and live a life of misery to yourself and others when you could be bearing fruit and giving glory to God? Edwards died when he was 54. That's young. <laughs> I'm 52. Calvin, who many people considered to be the greatest theologian ever, was 55. Sometimes the Lord takes away his choicest servants long before we ourselves would have wished or thought best. Don't waste your life. And yet in his wisdom, he does everything well, doesn't he? He knows and he plans all of our days before one of them comes to be, as Psalm 139 verse 16 says. The challenge and the responsibility is laid before us then is use your time well. 
Make the most of every opportunity. In particular, do not be foolish, but understand, discern, find out what's the Lord's will today. And if you're young, it's just as important as if you're old. Glorify God today. And if you're in the middle of exams, yes, study hard to the glory of God. Well, not today, tomorrow. Today's the Lord's day. You rest, right? On a very practical level, doing the Lord's will is simply a matter of what you decide to do or be full of. I mean, you can either decide to be full of wine or some other substance. It's interesting, isn't it, that we often call it spirits. Or you can choose to be full of the spirit, God's presence. That's the great challenge in our society today. That's the one thing I think, you know what, I think more than anything else, it's people, what, what, what they worship, alcohol. The one thing that remained open throughout all of COVID, BWS, an essential service. And if it's the latter, it's going to express itself in four very specific ways. If you're filled with God's spirit, it will affect your fellowship, it will affect your worship, it will affect your gratitude, and finally, it will affect your relationship with other peoples in submission. Let me quickly go through these. It will affect your fellowship. When we come together as a church, we don't just come together to worship God, we come together to encourage each other. So when we sing... We're not just singing to praise the Lord. You're actually singing to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why you lift your voice so that others can be encouraged. We just got back from the men's convention at Poetina. 150 blokes in a small room belting out hymns to God. And you know what was really interesting is how many guys had their phones up recording the sound of other men singing. When we come to church, do you ever feel like when you first come to church a bit down? You know, I find this regularly. I feel cold spiritually until I've heard the call to worship and I start singing. I don't know what happens, but every week God lifts my spirit. He renews my faith by hearing and participating with other people, singing praises to God. The Holy Spirit is empowering you and I to bear witness to one another. That's why church is and always will be an essential service. Our singing is not just horizontal, it's vertical. Some people today want to say that worship's only about encouraging each other and living a godly life the rest of the week. But look at what Paul says in the, in the second half of verse 19. This is the great corrective to that kind of flat view of worship. Our praise is not just about building each other up. It's also about giving God honour and glory and praise. Paul says, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. It's not just to one another. It's also to the Lord. Being filled with God's spirit is about being profoundly God-centred. It's about being able to recognise the reality of the Lord being seated and ruling from his throne in heaven. 
Maybe that's why Paul immediately goes on to talk about gratitude, of always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as we saw earlier, friends, gratitude and thanksgiving are two of the key expressions of being filled with God's Spirit, aren't they? Sometimes people say, you know, can you be, can you be a Christian and, and, and not be characterised or marked by joy? And, you know, I know there's hard times in life where it's difficult, you know, to really feel overwhelming praise to God. But, you know, I think the answer is, yeah, you can be a Christian. You just can't be spirit-filled like that and remain like that for very long. Yes, there are hard times. But we give thanks in all circumstances, don't we? Because we know we have a loving God. I know that might be hard to hear, but sometimes I think we create for ourselves a sense of feeling sorry for ourselves. Or it's all so hard. And, but the, what you've done is your, your, your gaze has gone onto your belly button. It's gone onto you. It hasn't gone on to, up to the Lord. What's more... I think joy and gratitude is something we can cultivate and be self-conscious about cultivating because it's about lifting your eyes up to heaven. Often the reason why we're not more grateful and thankful is because we've chosen not to be. You see, there are always multiple things that we can be thankful and, and we can be praising God for. The hope of resurrection is one of the biggest. You might think, well, it's so desperate, it's so bad, I'm like this close, I've got one foot in the grave, well, you can praise God that he'll raise you from the dead. You are never completely lost and without hope. But even he's so good and he's so gracious and he's so kind and he's so loving that he rescues us, isn't he? Multiple times in the day, throughout the week, where you can overflow with praise for his, for his goodness and his grace. Yeah. I mean, notice how Paul says that we are to always give thanks to God. And that what's more, we are to do this in everything. That's not to say that we're not to be thankful or we're to be thankful necessarily in a way that's masochistic, you know, or frustrating situations in and of themselves. You know, we often have to go through difficult or distressing things, don't we? What Paul means is that even as hard as those times are, we're to continue to trust and rejoice in the Lord. That's what it means to be filled with God's Spirit. Because it takes the Spirit of God to give you that. We're to cultivate the joy given and produced by the Holy Spirit. And as we saw the other week, not grieve the Spirit. You know, I think one of the main ways we grieve the Spirit is when we grumble. It grieves God deeply. Because what we're saying when we grumble is that God's not good. He doesn't love us. He's not in control. One of the ways, again, if we stop and consider, in the midst of everything that's happening, even today, can you think of the good things God is doing in your life? 
It's one of the ways I think being filled with God's Spirit manifests itself. The last one is a bit of a strange one when you first hear it, and it's really countercultural. And I'm going to be walking into a hornet's nest next week. And it gets a lot of people upset. It's the S word. It's something that we have to do, and it's even one of the hallmarks of being filled with God's Spirit. What am I talking about? Submission. Submission. Not too many words in the English language get people's backs up like this particular word does. We live in a culture today where we're so egalitarian and free. No one will tell me what to do. We're all leaders, not followers. Even children in the classroom now determine their own future. And yet, just take a look again at what the Apostle Paul has to say in verse 21. Whether you're a man or a woman, this is something that we all have to do. I don't think to every single person all of the time. That's not what Paul's saying. But in some or other aspect of your life, at one point or another, we all have to submit. We'll have to follow the lead of someone else. And at the end of the day, we'll have to obey. Paul says in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, God willing, we'll look at this in a bit more detail next week and we'll slow down and we'll look at the, what's called the household code over a couple of different weeks. And can I say, I think it's one of the most life-changing passages in this part of Ephesians. The whole book's amazing, but this is particularly relevant today. But as I just said, Paul is not saying every single Christian should submit to every other person in their life all of the time. That's a common misconception. Kevin DeYoung makes the point that the Greek word for submission is never used in the New Testament as a generic love and respect for others. Let me just stress that again. It's never used that way. Instead, of the 37 times it's used in the New Testament outside of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, it always refers to a relationship where one party has authority over the other. So, for example, Jesus submitted to his parents. The demons submitted to the disciples. The flesh submitted to the law. Creation is submitted to futility. The Jews submit to God's righteousness. Citizens are to submit to rulers or governing authorities, although that's been tested of late. The spirit of prophets to prophets, slaves to their masters, the youngest to the elders, and so on. Kevin DeYoung concludes this, Nowhere in the New Testament does submission refer to the reciprocal virtues of patience, kindness, and humility. It always refers to one party or person or thing lining up under the authority of another. What we are all being called upon to do then is to submit to the pertinent authority that the Lord has placed over us and that is what it means to be filled with God's Spirit. But when we grumble, when we complain, when we rebel, well, it's the opposite, isn't it? It grieves God's Spirit. We're to be submissive and fulfill the roles that God has designed us to function within. To kick or to rebel against that 
is to kick and to rebel against God's Holy Spirit. For the Spirit desires us to be meek. The Spirit desires us to be gentle. The Spirit is working within us to be humble. But on that, hopefully next week. I want to conclude, though, by telling you about the three stages, and I'll say this quickly, of spiritual development. I only heard about this recently, but it's so good I had to share it. This guy who is a college campus minister in the US says that when people come to the Lord Jesus Christ, there's this common path that they follow with regard to Scripture. And that is, they first of all use the Bible as a guide to good behaviour. Their constant use of the Bible is to have it tell them, what do I need to do? At some point or other, they get to the what to do list down and then they start thinking of the next phase in their life and they think, what does the Bible tell me how to think? At this stage, the Bible may simply become a book of doctrines used to validate our logic or maybe even to debate one another in um, some theological argument. But at some point, however, if spiritual growth continues, new believers discover that as important as right behaviour and right doctrine are, the Bible is not a Boy Scout manual and it's not a debater's index. He says some Christians can get stuck in one or more of these modes, believing that living as the children of light is essentially about right behaviour and right thinking. But the Bible is more than that. It's more than right behaviour. It's more than right thinking. The third stage of spiritual development is when mature believers discern that God's word is the means by which God himself makes himself known and that we might commune with him, that we might know him. The ultimate aim of scripture then is making known the heart to the heart, the reality of God, who is himself the ultimate desire, power, meaning and hope of the children of light. And this is exactly the same way that the ultimate aim, the Apostle Paul, is to encourage us to not only reflect the light of the sun, but to know and love the sun. You see, be careful, friends, that you don't turn the Bible into an end in itself. The Bible shows me how to live, yes. The Bible shows me how to think, yes. The Bible shows you the true and living God to be worshipped and known and loved. Do you see? Keep using the Bible to know God, to grow in your relationship with Him, to be transformed by its teaching so that you live in the light as the sun is the light. Walk in the light, friends, because God is light. And we've been rescued out of darkness to know and reflect him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for speaking to us through your word. We're amazed, Lord, that you, the true and living God, would humble himself and take on human flesh and not just become a man, but that, Lord, you would die in our place. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would forgive us for where we have sinned against you even after you've brought us into the light and that knowing how much we are loved, we will live lives of love. Lord, may you remind us of these truths as we go into our week this week. May we put into practice these truths. 
to the glory of your name and may we please you in all that we do, think and say. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.